Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Uh, thanks again to all of my supporters. I just got a nice big donation from somebody. I really want to thank them. Uh, we're almost at our goal. Uh, and uh, in addition to that, uh, today we're going to have um, Trey Taylor of Verdant Power. Uh, Verdant Power is a company that exclusively uses renewable energy, uh, more specifically from uh, wa- like tidal power sources. I'm going to pull up the uh, website here. But um, anyway, I discovered Verdant Power once again from uh, Big Ideals for a Small Planet, a very good TV show. Um, and they were demonstrating the tidal power that you see in Zeitgeist Addendum. They were basically testing it. So I'm going to give the link out here. The link is also in the description of the show if you're watching, in, um, you're watching the archive. So it's very easy to find. I'm going to throw it in the chat. But... In any case, uh, we're going to have Mr. Taylor come on the air here, uh, and we will get this show started. Thanks again for tuning in to V Radio, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Once again, also, I wanted to thank you guys. The, the comments that you make and the suggestions for shows are very much appreciated. Uh, please continue to do that kind of feedback. It helps me know what it is that you want to see next, you know, and our goals to... You know, teach people about the Venus Project and such. So, in any case, let me go ahead and add Mr. Taylor to the call, and uh, then we will be good to go. Give me a moment to type it out. Here we go. Hello, Trey Taylor. Hello, Mr. Taylor. Uh, you're live on V Radio to have you on today. Well, thanks for having me on today. Excellent. Um, well, uh, basically, I just kind of wanted to first start off. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, most of them are all Venus Project advocates, um, and uh, I've shown them a bit of your work, and they all seem interested. So uh, basically, take the floor and tell us what you do. Happy to do so. Um, well, my name is Trey Taylor, and I'm a co-founder and president of Burden Power. And we're a company in the marine renewable energy business. And marine renewable energy is described as a wave and tidal power for the most part. And what we are developing is the uh, world's first tidal power project um, using this type of technology in New York City. And we got underway back in 19, well, actually starting building technologies back in 1999, but putting in the first system that is on its path to being coming commercialized in uh, 2002. And what that technology is, it looks like a, it looks like a wind turbine, but it operates underwater. And uh, how that works uh, in tidal currents and rivers is just the flow of the current. So it's not the rise and fall of the tide, but just the movement of the current, like a wind current, turns the rotor on our turbine, which in turn turns a generator inside of a nacelle all underwater, you can't see it, and then that electricity, that raw electricity is brought to shore where it's conditioned, and then it goes into the local distribution grid for disbursement. So that's it in a nutshell. It sounds very simple, but it's been very, very complex kind of work with a lot of learning along the way, and that's that's where we are today. Excellent. Definitely excellent. Um, 
Well, uh, you know, I got to watch the episode of Big Ideas for a Small Planet that featured your work, and I have to admit it was really cool to see, you know, those water turbines go into the water. Now, I mean, I guess that was kind of an experiment, right? You were basically just proving that it could be done? Right. It's actually, there's the, uh, referring again back to to the Tidal Energy Project in New York City, it's a three-phased project. And so the first phase, uh, which we put in in December of 2002, was to deploy this turbine, as I described it, from the surface. We developed a special kind of uh, vessel, and it was deployed from the surface. That test was, to your, to your point, uh, Neil, was to uh, test the concept. And it, it exceeded our expectations. And so four years later, and the reason for four years later is that there's a lot of competing needs on the resources. So we were doing a lot of baseline studies uh, about the environment. In fact, you know, the getting baseline information about the environment which our turbines are operating which is all, not only nature, but also um, others who use the waterways, navigation, uh, fisher, fishermen. Um, and that data that we ca- gathered then was incorporated into the new design, the next generation design. And we put six of those turbines in uh, beginning in December of 2006 after all the studies were done. And that's what we've been running and just con- successfully concluded. So, And that test goes from concept to pre-commercial. And we just successfully wrapped that up. And so the third phase will actually be installing commercial turbines on the same site. Wow. And I can't wait to see how that turns out. Um, you know, it, I remember actually just watching it. They, you know, they're very good at being dramatic about it. Like, I guess it, they, the first time that the turbines went down, the computers weren't giving you data. And then all you had to do was restart the computers, and then everything was working good. <laughs> I was it's, like, wow. <laughs> it's it, it, a lot of issues. There's, because this has never been done before, I mean, there's been others out there now who are doing it, but since we, we were the first at doing it, there's a lot we are learning along the way. And the best way to learn, actually, is, is by through trial and error. And that much of that is what's going on. And at the same time, monitoring every aspect of what we were doing underwater to make sure that we weren't hurting the environment in any way. And so that takes time, and we, make, and we made mistakes, and we learned because the water forces are much faster and stronger than we even anticipated through all of our modeling. And so it's not only computer glitches, but it's the materials we use to hold up the rotors. Some of the rotors broke because of that, and of course we replaced them with stronger materials. But that's all part of the excitement of learning, and our young engineers really rallied and rose to the occasion to get it right. And so I like the team of people we have working at this company. Yeah, that's definitely the kind of work that people involved with the Venus Project are interested in, too. Um, here in Michigan, actually, they offer um, degrees in alternative energy now. It's It's been tempting me to think about going back to school. Um, now, I, I asked you, I don't know if you got an opportunity to, did you ever get a chance to check out the Venus Project? I, I apologize, I have not. I have been really busy this week and had mm-hmm. all good intentions, but you know what they say about good intentions. <laughs> oh, that's no problem. Basically, just a, a basic overview so that you know what, what my listeners are all about is uh, the Venus Project is uh, was developed by industrial designer and social engineer Jacques Fresco. He's about 93 years old. He grew up during the Great Depression. Uh, he saw a lot of problems with not just the scientific issues, obviously, but also just with the money system and how people were not really being taken care of. That they, you know, there were all these people lying around in the streets, but you know, and there was all these resources available. There's no reason we couldn't have taken care of them, but they didn't have the pieces of paper that our society demanded. So he ended up like getting into science and you know, studying how we could make things as self-sustaining as possible. And the Venus Project basically tries to expose technology like yours 
to prove to people that if we applied technology correctly, we could very easily take care of everybody on this planet. And also, if by overcoming scarcity, probably solve a lot of the social issues. So basically, that's kind of where we're coming from. And obviously, tidal power was one of the things that's listed in, you know, in our various studies about solutions for energy that don't involve oil and, and basically products that can be made scarce and therefore fought over. Um, so that's just the gist of it. Uh, but basically, that, that's what we're about. And uh, what you're doing obviously applies because we're looking into trying to find ways to just go with the natural energy that's already here, that's present in the earth, that's clean, renewable. And you know, in, the, in the end, I mean, I guess that, that's really a question is, um, how expensive do you think tidal power is in comparison to other forms of power? Well, a couple of things here. First, a comment about uh, uh, the project, uh, the Venus project. I really like that philosophy a lot. Mm-hmm. And let me let me add to the thinking just from um, what we what we are discovering and learning as well. And that is this whole notion of um, of sustainability and the necessity of the world to move toward uh, sustainable communities. And of course, as you've already pointed out, at the cornerstone of sustainability is renewable energy. And there is so much uh, indigenous resources that surround every community that can be harvested and harnessed and, and, uh, and harnessed in various number of ways and then integrated to provide the full power such as you just articulated. So we like that a lot, and it's one of the reasons, too, why we are in the water because we think there, in, in the water is this concept of a water energy nexus. And quite simply, it is that energy uses water and water uses energy, and the world is running out of both. And it's the idea of what we can do by using water currents, not only in tides, and this is a long digression, but I'll get to the cost here in a second, mm-hmm. but not only in tides, but also in rivers, also in constructed waterways like man-made canals, um, aqueducts, uh, irrigation right. canals. Definitely. Kind of and you can take as long as you want. Explain, <laughs> explain away. We're used to listening to Mr. Fresco talk, and he's very long-witted, so have at it. <laughs> Good. Thanks. Thanks for the opening. Um, <laughs> And so, and so one of the things that we're really focusing on is how we can uh, use the forces of water to know other things, such as because we're already operating in water, uh, dirty or salt water in the case of tides, um, we can use the mechanical power from the rotors to actually pump dirty or salt water through electrified membranes. That process is called reverse osmosis. And so we look down the road, once we prove out that we can generate reliable technology and have wide applications, in other words, what we're doing in New York is just the tip of the spear, if you will, for having a variety of applications that could work in all kinds of different depths of water and speeds of water closest to where populations are. And most of the world now has moved toward, you know, majority of the world now is moving towards cities or some sort of urban context. Uh, and so which we, these systems will be operating going directly into local uh, power grids rather than through transmission systems. And so here we are, mechanical power pumping water, the pumped water can go in through these electrolyzed membranes to create clean water. So what we have is creating clean electricity and clean water at the same time. We could also, off peak hours, use electricity, and think about this way of storing, storing the extra electricity in, in new storage batteries, or set up electrolysis systems to extract hydrogen from water rather than from gas that's being done today for stationary fuel cells. So these stationary fuel cells kick on during the day, during peak time, plus the water currents from rivers or tides running at the same time. So you see this is an example of an integrated system or a hybrid system that could be providing electricity. 
And, well, especially, like, Eddie, you're talking about cleaning water at the same time. In some ways, you could almost, like, I mean, could that in any way be uh, fitted in a way to, say, clean polluted water to make exactly. it to repair it? That's amazing. That's exactly so, what it could do. So, so salt water, dirty water, anything polluting water. So, theoretically, uh, as time progresses and we get better at this technology, um, water purification plants could also become local power plants because you have moving water going through those plants. So we could be cleaning water while at the same time maybe generating electricity for the local community. So there's lots of applications in that regard. That's down the road, not here yet. Mm-hmm. And not here yet meaning costs are still high because it's still new technology. But we are on a path toward commercialization where we're, we're cutting our costs in half through different incremental periods of time and size of projects. Right. And so to, to be more specific, we see a day coming in the not too distant future where our cost will be uh, competitive with what it is now to put up a wind farm or even not quite. If, well, and this is what I started, I, well, the reason I was hesitating is because I started to say we won't be quite cost competitive with fossil fuel, but that's not quite true because so many fossil fuels right now are being subsidized by the government and the cost of fossil fuels will take into account externalities. And by that I mean the cost of cleaning up the environment because we're burning fossil fuels. And so if you did a levelizing, a level playing field between those costs and the cost of fuel, I would say that we're competitive today. And yet our, the reason our costs will come down is that over time, the costs for fossil fuels will continue to rise because those are finite resources. And, co- and the cost of electricity will continue to rise because of that. Whereas we'll cross paths with them because our cost of the fuel is zero. We're right. borrowing from nature, but we're not taking anything away without restoring it. It's just passing. It's wasted energy is what we're capturing. That's amazing you know, when you think about it. And it, it makes so much more sense than, like, going through all the trouble of digging up, you know, uh, oil. It's, it's dirty. It's nasty. I mean, people fight wars over it as opposed to just, you know, utilizing the energy that's already there. Now, what is different about tidal power than, like, these dams that you see that generate electricity? Or are they basically the same thing? Well, you, you, just, you just said it with maybe out realizing it. It's the dams. Um, mm-hmm. The difference between our systems and what's called conventional hydropower is that it doesn't require any dams or any impoundments. And the way traditional conventional hydropower works is to impound the water, and then the lake behind it acts as a reservoir that's released through what's called pinstock. These are like big pipes. And, and the water rushing down these big pipes against a turbine is what generates electricity, and then it's released, and it's on its way. But what you're doing is you're slowing up and impounding uh, water behind the structure. You're reducing the flow of the river. It's creating, uh, it, can, it can create problems in terms of fish passage, sediment buildup, China, displacement of people, and, and bearing of antiquities. So those are some of the problems associated with dams. And... Most, most of the geographical sites that could support a dam are now dammed. So it leaves all the other moving water to be captured using this means. Or in some cases, dams that are very, very, very old, maybe some of those start coming down and can be replaced with our systems, which are like underwater wind turbines. And you don't see them. They're just all below the right. water, turning slow, very, very slowly, um, generating electricity. Now, I presume you do something to, like, obviously, like, mark the area or prevent, like, you know, boats or whatever from running into these turbine systems. Um, I mean, that just kind of goes without saying. I mean, just generally, how do you go about that? I mean, like, you know, for example, in the place where you had the turbines, you know, during your initial test, uh, what did you guys do to keep people away from these things? 
Right. We um, there's several things. Uh, we put up uh, uh, signs, literally said that they were down there, and um, and buoy markers. So there were flotation devices on the surface of the water just to let boaters know that they're down below. But using the right uh, the project, we call it the right project, which uh, R I T E, which stands for the Roosevelt Island Tidal Energy Project. So R I T E right. Mm-hmm. In, during the right project with the six turbines below water, we had um, markers up letting know which were the three rows of two turbines uh, existed, and so boaters knew. However, this is part of working out things. As I mentioned, remember the four years we were preparing to put in the six turbines. It's working with the navigational community and fishery people to make sure that our rotors were far enough below the water should someone, for example, ignore the signs or a boat that's in trouble drifts over. The tip of the rotor during the lowest point of low tide Still, the tip of the rotor to the surface of the water was anywhere from six to eight feet. So, most all recreational craft can pass over that without a problem. Even most sailboats with five-foot keels would pass right over the top uh, again without a problem. Uh, but, but the turbine field itself, as all fields, was taking up even less than a third of the of the east channel of the East River. So you had still the whole West Channel and two-thirds of the East Channel for deeper draft vessels or for most recreational crafts to go right around right around the turbine field. But if they got in trouble and went over the cross, over the top, there's still this clearance over the top. So everything right. we do would be to to position turbines far enough below the water or out of the way of, of, of navigational channels not to interfere in navi- navigation. That's excellent. Um, I'm going to say something. Uh, caller, uh, there was somebody who called earlier. They called and then I thought they were just calling in to, to uh, listen, which is one of the ways one of the people who listen to the show. Um, unless you, uh, I think it's uh, push one, it won't show me uh, show me that your hand is up. So if you wanted to ask a question, you, you have to press one, and then I will bring you on the air, and then you can uh, basically talk to our guest and myself. So I apologize uh, because I saw that you hung up later that you know, if you were trying to ask a question, I wasn't ignoring you. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, somebody actually, because I have, I have listeners from the United Kingdom, um, they were asking how much of the United Kingdom could be powered by this technology. Well, that, there's been a lot. The United Kingdom has a lead uh, over the United States and uh, Canada in that regard. Uh, the government's done a wonderful job of providing studies and funding support for technology similar to ours uh, to get underway. And so in, in the U.K., uh, there are a number of, of similar technologies that are being developed and tested uh, as we speak. And the potential, the, the potential so far from these studies show there's at least – Two gigawatts, it's about 2,000 megawatts of potential um, in the UK. Uh, that, was, that was based on a rather cursory review of primarily the deeper, bigger tidal sites, yet around the UK there are potentially even more sites. So I, now this is just a guess, I have nothing really to back this up yet, but based on our experience and evaluation of Canadian and US waters, we think there could be at least twice as much. And so if we're talking uh, let's say 4,000 megawatts, that's the equivalent of uh, four nuclear power plants uh, for the UK. And so I think that's, and I think that's quite significant uh, uh, for, uh, for, for um, England, Scotland, and Wales. And, uh, and we look forward, in fact, we as a company are looking forward to getting over there and uh, applying some of our technologies to some of those waters. Excellent, excellent. Um, now, I, Jacques, this is one of the reasons I was hoping you would check out, at some point check out the Venus Project, is uh, okay. Jacques has an idea, because this is like somebody's already asking about it, I knew they would, 
he was thinking that if we really got our technology together, we could eventually tap into the, I believe it was uh, basically, there's a, I'm forgetting the name of it, but there's a really fast moving area deep under the ocean um, that would, uh, that he was still wondering if we could tap into it, and I'm having a hard time remembering where it is. I know it's, it's something stream, but um, he's got like drawings of an idea he had for how you could create like just immense amounts of power by tapping into that water. Uh, now, are you thinking of the, of the Gulf Stream? It could be, yeah, that would be it. Yeah. Uh, the Gulf Stream is a wonderful current, and it's fast enough. Uh, just to let you know that the current technology, and, and keep in mind, this is the beginning of technology mm -hmm. as in, in this whole new field and new industry, and as all of us get better at this, we'll be able to maybe to operate in slower waters. Right now, uh, all the technologies require water speeds of about 2 meters per second. That's about six feet per second or about four knots of water speed. And the Gulf Stream is the only big significant current in the world that travels at that speed. But that's but that we would all of us in this business refer to that as the mother load of energy. Right. And and where it comes closest to the United States is near Florida. And uh, Florida Atlantic University right now is doing some studies on the Gulf Stream and looking at a variety of different technologies that might work. Uh, Department of Energy is putting forward some grants uh, to work for technologies in the, in the Gulf Stream, so it's being it's being considered, and we certainly would like to do so. But unlike our UK brethren, if you will, in in this pursuit, we're starting at one end of the scale, starting with smaller size rotors. But then, as we prove those out to be reliable, then we're starting to scale up to larger size rotors for deeper and faster water. Whereas in the UK, for example, and even with the Gulfstream folks, they're starting off with very large rotors, and that's just different, just different approaches to this business. We think it's easier to scale up than it is to scale down, and by starting off smaller, we think our learning curve can be faster from one generation to the next, and not quite as expensive, because we're not building as big of uh, systems each time. So it's just different approaches. All of us have a have what I what I call a cocked eye right toward that Gulfstream. So Yes, it's a, it's a tremendous resource, and once we've done that well, then we start looking at other currents similar, and the technology might start working in slower moving currents, such as those around South Africa, for example. Excellent. Yeah, that's uh, he. They, that's was basically curious. He's got drawings about it, and now the, the listeners are glad you answered that one. Now, um, having talked about like the various issues, you said that at this point, because the technology is kind of uh, young, that's the reason why we won't be able to compete with fossil fuels, fuels right away. Um, but in the, in the long term, we've also talked about, I mean, the idea that I'm still like, you know, flabbergasted the notion that we might actually be able to have a system of power that cleaned pollution rather than polluting. I mean, that alone is, is priceless to me, that the notion that we might be able to set these things up to clean water, uh, oh. you know, it's just oh. amazing. Neil, let me let me add to that as well. I mentioned a few things about this water energy nexus, you know, creating hyd you know, hydrogen from water, mm -hmm. uh, clean water that could be used because we're operating in, in dirty water, and of course, clean electricity because none none of our systems create any emissions. They're just turning slowly the water and creating electricity. There's something else to share with you as well, and that is because the this this turbine, the mechanical power of the rotor slowly turning, produces uh, it, it could you know provide can drive a pump. So that is, you don't need electricity for a pump. That mechanical power could pump uh, water onto irrigation fields or reverse it. And now we can start doing is pumping oxygen into anoxic waters right. and, and, and actually bring waters back to life and perhaps even 
seabed, or like for example, the Mississippi River flowing into uh, the Gulf of Mexico has actually killed all of the shrimp beds down there because the water is so anoxic. Just all the oxygen's gone because of the nitrates from the farm fields running into the water. So can you imagine uh, systems like ours operating throughout the Mississippi River, pumping just sheets of oxygen into the Mississippi River? Now, it, it's, I admit, it's a bit of a band-aid approach to the problem, but nonetheless, it's a way of getting oxygen back in the water that might help do things such as revitalize shrimp beds off the coast of Louisiana. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, you know, and I just, you keep just talking about these various applications that we could do with this that would allow us to, um, you know, to improve everything. And it just, it's, it's amazing to me that people don't see, I mean, that's the other thing about the Venus Project is that we think that we need to take responsibility for the Earth. And if, you know, if you're going to expect anything good out of it, is that these kinds of things to me sound like a necessity. This is not an option. This is something that must be built. You know, I mean, especially with what we're doing to the world. Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I like the thought a lot, and uh, here's, here's, what I, here's what we're all up against, if you will. It, it, it's, it's conditioned behavior. I mean, uh, all of us are sort of, we all learn to see things certain ways, and so we sort of react in those certain ways. What I like about what you've shared with me on the Venus Project is, is this idea of enlightenment. It's the idea of educating and, and keeping that sort of steady drum beat up, because you never know when you begin to sow these seeds of thought where they take hold and begin to germinate. And so the approach, I really applaud, applaud this approach a lot and your program for really getting at it. And pretty soon you start getting this, this sort of uh, this, this, uh, tipping point, if you will, where everybody begins to start working consciously and subconsciously toward a direction of sustainability. After all, this Earth, this little tiny, teeny tiny satellite called Earth rolling through, through space, we have finite resources and we've got to learn how to husband them well uh, for future generations. And uh, so I, I applaud what you're doing, and, and I'm glad I could be on your show. That's why we call it the intelligent management of the Earth's resources. It's kind of a critical <laughs> issue. Now, we have a caller. Let me bring him on. Uh, caller in the 954 area code, you're on the air. Did you have a question? Caller in 954? Hello? Hello. Did you have a question? Oh, no. Did I come up on your board? Yes, you did. That's okay. You can go ahead and listen. I'll just uh, close, turn off your mic. <laughs> thanks, thanks. Here we go. Yep. Sorry about that. But no, um, that's the reason why earlier, like when somebody called in, I, I don't generally answer them unless like they raise their hand, which you do by pressing a button on your phone. So in any case, um, but yeah, like we were saying, uh, the intelligent management of the Earth's resources and what you're talking about cures so many problems. And I think the benefits of actually having you know, work like yours especially. It's one of the things we run into a lot when we run into naysayers who say that what we want to do, the idea of a creating a sustainable world for everybody with no scarcity where we can easily take care of people, they, they tell us that our ideas are crazy because all of the technology doesn't exist yet. Like I remember bringing up geothermal power and, you know, this guy's like, oh, that's Star Trek. That's not real. I'm like, well, did you know that, you know, Iceland powers itself about 70% on geothermal power, like almost the whole country? And they weren't aware of that. And that, that, that tends to be one of the reasons why we focus so much on spreading awareness is that I don't think, like, for example, until Big Ideas for a Small Planet, I wasn't sure if anybody was doing tidal power. And then I saw it, and I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know, and that's kind of what we're talking about, about spreading the awareness that in many cases the technologies to do this already exist. But because they're not profitable, because it's much more profitable to focus on things like you know, commodities like oil and coal that you can artificially manipulate the market to make as much profit as possible, 
you know, in fact, not only uh, is it not profitable, it's also something that's dangerous to their, you know, to those other solutions. Right. Uh, you know, and I mean, uh, basically, do you guys ever run into any kind of um, opposition? Do you ever like see any lobbyists from oil companies giving you any trouble? Oh, not not directly, but you know, these are these are there's always those forces at play, and you've heard the expression before about uh, whose ox is getting gored here, and you hear those kind of you know, business talk expressions, but what that really means is if there's money going to help subsidize, you know, and think about how much subsidization the oil gets for our relationships with Saudi Arabia, right. and, and I need to share with you all the problems that's causing, and we sort of turn a blind eye to that. And so I talk about condition behavior without realizing what, what kind of impacts we're having directly and directly on the world is a shame. But but here's something, and you, you trick the thought with me, and this is what I like about uh, the, the Venus Project, the more I understand it, is, is that for mankind, for, for humanity to, to evolve, it's because of our brains. We're intelligent creatures. And part of that means adaptability, adapting to our environment, realizing what we have to work with, and making change. Uh, for those who would not welcome change and stay the course, um, I mean, there's dinosaurs. Things went extinct. But the interesting thing about dinosaurs is they didn't go extinct. They evolved into birds. And so what we need to be thinking about is how humankind evolves and how we have a hand in helping in this evolutionary process, not implying we're turning, turning into some other creature, but we're intelligent creatures, and we ought to be using our minds. And this is what I like about what the Venus Project is about, is, is causing us to think about what the world lies ahead, how we manage our resources, and, and, and the more we start doing new things and being creative about it, the more it leads to other new things. In other words, innovation provides more innovation, and it's the idea of taking collaborative approaches to solutions. Everybody's idea is worth something, and everybody ought to be weighing in to help us get to the point where we do finally reach sustainability. Definitely. You know, um, we've talked about, like, actually, I'm kind of doing a, a special on this issue, just like different hosts, that are, I'm sorry, different guests that I've been bringing on, you know, who are parts of different uh, alternative energy solutions. Uh, the, the last gentleman I had on uh, was, um, he was actually on an episode of Big Ideas for a Small Planet. I don't know if he was on the same episode as you or not, but uh, he basically specializes in converting diesel engines to burn um, vegetable oil that people give away, you know, that, that's dirty oil. You know, and he talked about the various troubles that he's had and, you know, the, the things that, you know, basically get in your way is like, you know, the they didn't like that these people were going to be able to power their vehicles without using gasoline because that got them out of the <laughs> the road tax. Yeah. <laughs> they pay for roads yeah. and gas. And the fact that we have to hold back technology to make sure that our tax structure operates to me seems kind of silly. I mean, I don't I don't see how that's supposed to work. Especially, I mean, you know, it's your car you should be able to power it with whatever you want. But you know, I guess it's um, the the fact though is I'm glad that, as you pointed out that you know you're not getting a lot of opposition, and I, I hope that that continues. Uh, you know, the people I'd be worried about are the notion that we're still building coal power plants, for example, to me just is, is like an offense to my intelligence that anybody would still be doing that. I mean, I don't know what the benefit of it is, but it just it's so obviously a nasty way to do it, and there's so many other solutions now. Um, now I've seen wave power uh, generators too. They almost look like kind of a snake floating on the waves. Uh, have you guys ever done any work with that? No, we know that group. That's, that's called Palamus, and they had a test project underway in Scotland off at the called European Marine Energy uh, Centre mm -hmm. in Scotland. And since that time, uh, they w are working at getting a their commercial project underway off the coast of Portugal. Mm -hmm. Now. 
how the wave systems work different than our systems in recurrence is, is we use the term, we, we refer to ourselves as, as, as in-stream generation. So you think of streams of currents, river, tidal currents, that's how our systems work. Whereas wave systems like Palamas, literally, you're right, Palamas means sea worm, it's like a red snake on the surface of water, mm -hmm. is this un the undulating motion of the water has hydraulic systems like pumps inside. Right. And, and there's different buoys that work similarly. Um, ocean Power Technologies in New Jersey has, a pro has some projects underway around the world. It's the idea of the rise and fall of and its pumping action is what creates electricity. And, of course, the wave potential around the United States and the rest of the world is really huge, and it's getting these things sighted uh, nearest where power is needed. So places in the United States, for example, off the coast of California and Oregon is where a lot of these wave, in New Jersey, these wave test centers are now being set up. So it's underway. It's all, it's all happening. Excellent, excellent. You know, I probably should have asked this at the beginning of the show, but what got you involved in all this? At what stage of your life did you become part of this project, and, you know, what convinced you to, you know, to really push this extra thing? Because it always takes a certain initiative to try something absolutely new. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a late bloomer, if you will. Um, I had worked at major corporations uh, like Procter & Gamble and ITT, and, and then also I uh, worked uh, at trade associations. And one of those trade associations in Washington is the uh, Edison Electric Institute. It's the, um, investor, it's the trade association for investor-owned electric utilities. They produce about 90% of electricity in the United States. When I, and, and there I sort of began to get a real feel and appreciation for electricity infrastructure, realizing that economic, all economics is really based on infrastructure, the reliability of electricity to run factories, machines. Um, and, and, and so I, I get a real appreciation for, for that contribution, if you will, to any society is, is reliable electricity. When I left EEI, I did some consulting work uh, for Baltimore Gas and Electric, or BGE, as they call themselves nowadays, and Price Waterhouse World Utilities Group. Working with all those organizations and just and and and, and loving to read about the world we live in and the environment and nature. I grew up in Oregon and did a lot of backpacking and mountaineering, so I had this sort of appreciation. I began to see this triangulation of forces coming together, and what I mean by that is electric utilities begin to deregulate, meaning independent power producers can now enter into the market and produce electricity, not relying purely on utilities. Because right. utilities are pretty state and central power, and they look at it in pretty much one set of lens, if you will. Um, the other is global warming. You can see it coming, and it's, and it's so very apparent today that it's happening at an alarming rate. Um, and, then, and then in Europe, it's decentralization of uh, utilities. In other words, the government stopped running utilities going and privatizing them. Uh, and then this whole notion of sustainability. And so you put all that kind of together, like a perfect storm in a different way, if you will. I saw a huge opportunity that was being missed, which is to tap the resources of moving water, much like wind is tapping uh, water or, or right. air currents. And so I got inspired by that and began to look around. And luckily, uh, a friend, a, a, a fellow, I used to, you know, a sailing buddy out of Annapolis, began to work a long time ago on a system that would work in water currents, a, a sort of a ducted rotor system. And so I put together a business team around that technology because heretofore, this is back, old, back in late uh, 90s, if you will, and what was very apparent about some of these garage tinkers like my friend was, um, or, or universities, is it's just the, there are concepts, a lot, a lot of concepts, but no business team to say, how can we take this concept and bring it to commercialization? So that's where I got started. 
Uh, it didn't work out as well as we had hoped. We tested that in conjunction of, uh, with Ontario Power Generation up in Canada. It, it, had, it had farther to go uh, in its commercialization uh, than we that we were wanting at the time. And so then we we checked. We went to the Department of Energy and discovered that uh, back in the '90s they did a report on these technologies. And there's one technology that they recommended that some business team ought to get around. Well, here we were, a business team looking for a technology. And the technology uh, was designed by New York University in their applied science lab and in conjunction with the New York Power Authority. So we, we, we chased down the professor and the scientists working on that because of New York University um, disbanded their applied science department, which is, which is too bad. And we found, we found the guys, and the, the fellow, the, the, the lead scientist, his name is Dean Corrin, um, is now uh, our director of technology. So uh, we started working with Dean, we put it together, we started running these tests and the concepts, and, and everything we do just keeps getting better and better, and the excitement of the company keeps continues to grow. And So I guess that's it. I just, right. What it really boils down to, Neil, I think, is getting the right team of people together, and that's so important. Then taking a very uh, transparent approach, being very open about what we're learning and discovering, um, and then also working very closely with the community and being very transparent in the, with the community and starting with the community so it becomes, in essence, their project. So you have early buy-in, community support for it. Right. Put all those factors together and being in a collaborative approach, it's amazing the ideas that come in, how we begin working together and how quickly we get to solutions. And, that's our story, and we should continue to push forward. Well, it sounds to me like you guys are doing great. Um, now, I know inevitably what a lot of us uh, in this movement are interested in um, getting off the grid and being self-sustaining. Now, is it possible somebody who owned like a, maybe a, a decent river or something, you know, had moving water on their land, could use your power on a more smaller scale, like a personal scale? Yes, it is possible, but here's the issue. In the United States, if you generate any electricity on navigable waters, now navigable waters could be considered, if you can get a kayak on the water, it's, it's navigable. Right. Uh, the, the one generating power, by that means, has to have a Federal Energy Regulatory Commission license. Okay. And there's a regulatory process you have to go through. And the regulatory process is really working with resource agencies. And mm -hmm. by that I mean with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, NOAA's Natural Marine Fisheries, EPA, Army Corps of Engineers. And those, these are all different agencies. You have to look at, by operating something in the water, will it do things like restrict navigation? Will it hurt fish or the environment? And so you have to pass what we call kind of a sniff test, if you will. Right. And you have to show and gather empirical evidence that it won't. For the last, you know, gosh, almost six years now, what we've been doing is gathering that empirical evidence that this particular technology of ours is not, it's not harming the environment. We're still going through tests. We've, 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 most of the tests we've gone through fine, and, 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 the, and the results are being examined as we speak. There's more tests to occur. Like, we know we aren't going to be hurting fish because fish swim around the turbines. They don't even bother to swim through them. And, but now the next step is, will we be infecting uh, uh, migration? So uh, we, have to, we have to examine that. And right. it just takes time. So anyway, it's a long-winded answer. to You just can't drop these things in the water. Right. I have a feeling, though, there'll become a day when we can because we are moving away from the concept of centralized power to decentralized power and sustainability and distributed generation. Right. So my feeling is if someone does have water flowing in their backyard, it's only a matter of time when the regulatory process for that will be very, very quickly. And it's because all these, other, all these other projects are underway. 
and there's evidence to show it's not hurting the environment, so it makes it easier for someone to install something in their backyard. And also the technology will get to a point where it's easier to do so. Right now it's very complex to getting big things into fast-moving water. It takes a lot right. of engineering. Yeah, well, definitely. It'll happen. It'll get there. Excellent. Well, yeah, I'm definitely am looking forward to that. Most most cases, people want to get off the grid now, generally have to kind of do a hybrid system that involves using uh, uh, solar and air power to, you know, like in a combination. And then some people are using geothermal to heat and cool their homes. Yeah. Um, but that that's really been about it. I mean, you can make geothermal sites, as has already been proven, it's kind of, but it's kind of a... Uh, Site specific. It's one of the major right. limitations that I understand. Now, um, what do you know? I mean, do you ever even dabble in the geothermal stuff, or do you know anybody who does? I mean, what's the, what's the news on that? As you know, obviously it's being done in Iceland. I was just curious if, like, wherever if, is there anybody looking into expanding that into the United States? Oh yeah, there is. Uh, there's a firm. It's called uh, Caithness Energy, and they're headquartered in uh, New York. And Caithness Energy, uh, not only dabbling, but they're building uh, geothermal plants successfully. So, yes, there's a lot of that going on. Um, in the whole renewable energy field, there is an association called the American Council on Renewable. They're all, all of us in renewable energy, whether it's wind, geothermal, solar, um, uh, um, biodiesel. All, everybody is in that association. All of us to swap notes and say, how might we work together to integrate our systems for, for communities? So all that's underway, and there's annual meetings where we come together and share ideas, and um, besides business cards. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think um, it's, if you could send me the information on some of these people, I'd like to get them on my show too. Um, I, should, I, should, I should email you. and, and <laughs> I, should, I should email you this organization because I think the ACOR organization and your show would be a natural, uh, a natural link. You'd work well together, I think, mm -hmm. for all the reasons you just mentioned. It also gives you sources of others and what they're doing out there in different forms of renewable energy. Now, if somebody wants to get into this industry, like if they want to work in it, what, what kind of uh, qualifications? I mean, obviously I mentioned that you could um, go through a period where you could, uh, you know, obviously get, you know, degrees in alternative energy. What would you suggest to somebody who wanted to get involved in this? Well, there's all kinds of degrees. In fact, we're, we're, we're getting into all kinds of new sciences. Like we're, we're marrying up hydrodynamics and fluid dynamic analysis, and we have some of our young engineers right out of Columbia University who are working in this new field and making discovery. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if new formulas are going to be coming out of some of our engineers that are working on all of this. So that, that, that's one aspect of it. But think about uh, uh, biologists, uh, environmentalists, natural scientists, everybody who understands how these might impact the environment, working with, again, this collaborative approach, working with us, uh, say, in industry, in a collaborative way to say, how do we design systems to even further lower the impact on the environment? And, and so I see all those kinds of opportunities coming out of it, as well as business people who begin to look at finance and economics in whole different ways. I mean, right now, uh, we have sort of, again, this conditioned behavior about how you look at values, if you will. All that needs to change along the notion of sustainability and, and working with what we have, how it changes value systems. So those kind of analytical capabilities, as well as just businessmen for working with governments to help build infrastructure and helping governments finance infrastructure. Hold on just a moment, Trey. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, I'm having a bit of a technical problem. Let me uh, reconnect us to the show really quick because I think that uh, what's going on is you're talking and unfortunately nobody's hearing. <laughs> so rather than asking you, because like, inevitably they're going to want me to ask that question again because that was what was coming up and um, sometimes this happens, not generally, but... All right.
All right. I'm very sorry about that, Trey. Um, with any luck, that fixed the problem. Uh, now, the question that I had asked you, and I apologize to ask you again. I just want to make sure that they're able to hear this. If they want to get involved in uh, industries like yours, what, what kind of um, schooling should they get? All right. Uh, good question, because I, uh, what I was saying, Neil, is I think every aspect of, ev every aspect of education would apply. I mean, there's the, there's the obvious fields of um, civil and mechanical engineering, for example. Uh, but also, there's new fields that are emerging. Uh, we have a couple of uh, Columbia University uh, people working, at, young people who just come out of school, working in the field of, and Berkeley, of, of fluid and hydrodynamics, bringing those two disciplines together to analyze the effects of current flows. And, and, and if you remove energy, uh, how, much, how long does it take for the water current to restore its energy to where it once was before we extracted it, those kinds of fields. But beyond that, in the whole fields of, um, of biology and geology and the science fields, uh, GIS and mapping, uh, all of those fields, I think, uh, are very applicable. And then you flip it over to the business side. And what I was about to explain um, was is understanding the financing, the economics of power projects uh, rather than centralized power, decentralized power how to work with governments and policymakers to establish economic incentives for building infrastructure, particularly in developing countries, uh, working with World Bank, IMF, UN. All these are whole new fields uh, about how to uh, get these kinds of new technologies in place. And so I would be encouraging to, no matter what, you're, what a student currently is studying, for example, keep a bigger picture in mind because my experience, as with all of my colleagues, all of us who got our college degrees, we're not doing what we got our college degrees in. It yeah. It's a springboard to what we're doing now, but a background for how what we can contribute to new kinds of, of decentralized power, sustainability, finance, engineering, design, all that is is the fields to get into. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. Um, actually, we had a professor from uh, Columbia University on the show just a little while ago uh, by the name of Mitchell Joachim, uh, works with uh, Terraform.org. He had a lot of really interesting ideas. Um, well, let me share another thought, too. It's, it's about getting a broad education, because mm -hmm. oftentimes working on a problem way over, let's say, in left field might be the very solution that's being sought for in right field. Right. And that's what we mean by collaboration. It's having a, developing a bigger picture and a philosophy toward the world we live in. No matter what field of study you're in, you might find that you have something you have to contribute to be brought to bear. Um, well, you know, actually, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so, for example, I just mentioned the speed of water that we need right now for all technologies, ours plus for what's being developed in the U.K. Mm -hmm. So what's the solution for getting these to work in slower water? So there's a whole new field that we design. And right. then another field in marine engineering how do you get these systems in and out of the water in the most cost-efficient and safe way? And currently, the, the marine engineering field has, it doesn't have a solution for that yet. I mean, right. all, these are all new challenges that await us. You know, and uh, th that's awesome. And one of the things, actually, when you talk about how you're not generally working in the fields you went to college for, something that uh, Jacques talked about when, in his book, The Best the Money Can't Buy, uh, was the fact that he, you know, he did work with a lot of colleagues who had college educations, and the funny thing is is that he found that in many cases they were almost limiting themselves. Like you get out of college and then you think you know everything about a subject, and then he pointed out that uh, you know there were accredited physicists that were writing books on the fact that we were never going to be able to fly while a couple of the bicycle mechanics you know, named the Wright brothers were building airplanes. 
That's right. That's a wonderful example. I think about uh, Jane Goodall. Um, it, remember I mentioned before about conditioned behavior? Mm-hmm. It, it, that's where it came from. Because I remember um, um, uh, studiers of uh, primates were saying that chimpanzees, a long time ago, uh, chimpanzees and apes weren't intelligent animals because they didn't use tools. What distinguished man from animals is were tool users. But leave it to somebody like Jane Goodall who wasn't trained in that field. I think she was a cultural anthropologist. And she, and she said, well, what do you call that stick that the chimpanzees use to stick in termite holes to bring out the termites? It's a tool. In other words, she wasn't conditioned to look at them in that way. She saw it in a different way. And that's the beauty of what lies ahead for all young people or anybody who thinks is the beauty of a college or not college, but by just reading a lot, studying a lot, developing an intellectual curiosity about the world we live in, is that... Um, you begin to find it's this idea of developing critical thinking and creative thinking and putting those two together. And that's the contribution that lies ahead for anybody to make to the world that awaits us. Definitely. Yeah, that's actually one of the major points um, in the Venus Project is we talk about the fact that during education, we should really be cultivating critical and analytical thinking, that that should be kind of the core of education. We, we have a tendency to just kind of throw concepts at people and make them memorize stuff, but we don't really teach them to break things apart and, and look at why they do what they do. And, and in some cases, I mean, you think about how messed up some of our priorities are. The fact that the, the smart kid who does good at the science fair is probably going to get himself, you know, beat up after school, but the kid who is a good quarterback is the one that everybody pats on the back. You know, and it's, it's interesting, you know, you've got to wonder how many people could have been, you know, really great inventors who were, you know, in some way kind of bullied out of it. Like Edison, for example, was dyslexic. And if he had stayed in the, in the actual, like, you know, public school system, he would, I don't think he would have ever developed into what he was because they were making, even the, the teachers were making fun of him, the students were making fun of him. His mother just had enough of it and took him out, educated her, you know, educated him herself. Right. You know, and... You think about what kind of people get produced by that. Well, you, know, you, you make such good points. And I think one of the best things that all of us can do is develop a sort of a, a Socratic approach to life. And uh, Socrates said it's, uh, it's more important than asking questions, which we all we should be always doing is asking questions all the time. The important thing is asking the right questions. And knowing how to ask the right question again, goes to our basis of knowledge. And knowledge comes from everywhere. The books we read, how informed we are about society we live in, plus a college education, but if you don't have one, that too is not important. And from us, from our point of view, uh, a college degree isn't necessarily important. It's the ability to think, work with a team of people, be innovative, I think, and that's what we like is uh, we go more for attitude and aptitude than anything else. Definitely. Well, you know, that's, that's definitely, you know, when you think about it largely, the ability to communicate with one another and have intelligent, intelligent conversations is a skill that many people I know who are educated don't have. <laughs> yeah. 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 So um, true. You know, and that's uh, especially like when you're working on these out-of-the-box projects, you know, you guys are really trend-setting. And, the, and I find it interesting that, you know, you, you yourself, for example, and you said a lot of people working on this project were not, you know, educated in this field specifically beforehand. And as you said, you know, reading through books, you know, actually studying and learning about things yourself, you know, is a great way to get started. And that's actually kind of what, for example, you always talk about what creates these people. You know, in Jacques Fresco's case, uh, he basically was really smart, and he was always, you know, messing around in class in that he was studying the things he wanted to study. He had a uh, school principal who, you know, basically took him aside and asked him what he was doing, and then he let Jacques educate himself. And then you end up with this guy who's creating all these great ideas. 
And it's, it's funny because he did it by getting out of the mold, out of the normal means by which we, we educate people. But um, in any case, um, you know, I think uh, I love your work. I'm looking at your website. I'm definitely, I linked it to everybody in the show page. I got a hold of your web uh, administrator. They said that they'll be at some point linking it on your website. So I want to thank you for coming on today. Um, and if you guys ever have any breakthroughs or anything that you want to report, uh, by all means, you know, get a hold of me, uh, and I will be happy to bring you on the air to report it. I have uh, access to about 300,000 listeners worldwide who are interested in this kind of information. So, uh, well, happy to do so. We, we, we're learning something new every day, and, and that means not too far off or more, yet more breakthroughs, and so I'll be happy to share that with you. Excellent. Well, that's, that's what this is all about. Um, you know, it, we've got just a, you know, about six or seven minutes left. I, w- I would say, you know, is there anything that you guys are, you know, like any big projects or any big breakthroughs that have happened since I've watched that episode of Big Idea for a Small Planet, Big Ideas for a Small Planet? You know, yeah. hey, go ahead. So, yeah, so far the, uh, some of the documentaries that are being made, like that one that you saw, there's others on National Geographic. In fact, this Sunday at 3.30 on, um, in New York on WNET, mm-hmm. uh, there's a program called Innovate Engineering Challenge, and that's a whole story about how our young engineers overcame a problem that we ran into, and that's going to be airing in New York. But look, look for it on PBS. It's called Innovate Engineering Challenge, and uh, it's been airing. It's been airing a lot on uh, PBS. And um, anyway, since all of that and what you saw aired, it's all it's all focused on our tidal project. We now are also working on a river project in the St. Lawrence River, and there were and there the water currents always flowing, so uh, we don't have the break in the tidal current to put stuff in and out of the water. So we're going to be designing altogether new ways, uh, new engineering ways of getting these turbines in and out of the water while the current's flowing. So that'll be our next challenge and breakthrough, and we're working on that right now up on the St. Lawrence River in uh, Canada. And there, Burden Power Canada, our subsidiary, is taking upon them. Their, that's their challenge to get that piece of the technology worked out. Then we'll integrate it with the technology that worked with our tidal power in the East River. Now, um, somebody's actually asking in the chat room, uh, is Verdant Power looking for apprentice engineers? Like, are you guys looking to recruit anybody? We, we will be. We're right on that threshold of getting uh, additional funding into the company, and then we're going to be hiring more. And so, yes, the, not, not today, uh, but probably, i say, within the next three or four months, yes. Excellent, excellent. Wow. Well, um, this is all very exciting. It's been a great show. I'm glad to have had you on. I apologize for the brief technical problem. But um, uh, now you were see, I'm going to push your website here to anybody. You know, obviously, I have it in the link for the show page, but it's verdantpower.com. Verdant is spelled V-E-R-D-A-N-T, power.com. Um, and I would definitely like to get a hold of you at some point off the air to talk to you about this, you know, this organization you were talking about, this kind of meeting of the minds of alternative energy, and uh, give everybody an opportunity to, uh, you know, give their say on what can be done. We off- we honestly think that these ideas don't really need to be in competition. That in truth, you know, a combination of all of these energy sources could probably dwarf anything that we had previously. You know, especially since it's all you know location driven. Like the fact, you know, if we set up solar farms and this huge desert that we have, you know, in the United States, we could power a lot. Um, there are projections that the, the air power uh, potential in, like, the central United States is, is big enough to power the whole country. Um, and, you know, obviously, I guess, what would you say are, you know, I guess that kind of brings up a question. What would you say is the, is the pot of gold for you? I mean, other than obviously the Gulf Stream, you know, is there anywhere in, in particular you think this power will be better? 
Right. So when you talk about uh, potential power, yes, the Gulf Stream alone could power all the United States, just like the wind could and the plains, the mm-hmm. Gulf Stream could do near where it comes near Florida. Mm-hmm. But also think of all, all of our big rivers, you know, the Missouri, Columbia, Mississippi rivers um, could work. And as we get better at the shallow rivers, think of canals, aqueducts, a number of things that are all, wherever there's any form of moving water. And let me share one last thought from another company that I get a real charge out of. It's called Rentricity. Mm-hmm. And they're working on getting electricity out of the very water pipes that bring water, uh, that bring water to our homes. Mm-hmm. And they're working on that system. So there could be neighborhood power coming out of our water pipes uh, for the neighborhood uh, homes. So these are all the things that are in the works. And it's very exciting what lies ahead. But I, I agree. It's a combination of everything that will get this, that will allow renewables to become mainstream electricity for the United States. That's great. You know, uh, Mr. Taylor, uh, thank you very much for being on. My listeners are very happy to have you on. We had a lot of great comments in the chat room. They were very glad to hear about this. Um, and uh, he's like, you know, one of them is very excited. He wants to come work for you guys. He says, that's great. It would be wonderful to be working in this direction every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of fun. It's, it's very, and we have fun. We have a lot of laughter, a lot of discovery, and, and everybody is a great team of people. Excellent. Well, Thank you again for being on, Mr. Taylor. Once again, you know, don't be a stranger. If you, uh, if you have anything that you want to report on and get out to my listeners, I'll be happy to bring you on. I basically, I don't, make, I don't make any profit on this radio show. It's just something I do as a service to these people because I don't think, in my opinion, this, this sort of thing is getting the kind of attention it deserves. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously that's beginning to change, and I'm glad for that. Uh, and I'm, what I'm worried about is I'm hoping that people are genuine about it because I'm almost afraid that the alternative energy thing is becoming in vogue or becoming in style. I just don't want it to be, you know, forgotten like a few years later. Like Jimmy Carter put solar panels on the White House and then Reagan took them off. You know, yeah, no, but this, this is this is no fad, and I congratulate you for what you're doing. So you you keep up the good work. Thank you, you very much for your your good work. All right, thank you very much, Mr. Taylor, and um, I look forward to hearing more from you in Verdant Power. Thank you. No, you will. Mm-hmm. Well, that was Trey Taylor from VerdantPower.com, a very excellent company working in the field of alternative energy. We're now down to the last 90 seconds of our show. Um, I'm almost to my goal on donations here at V-Radio for this month. Um, thank everybody for who has contributed in the past and those who will contribute in the future. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm going to continue bringing you great guests and great material uh, as much as I possibly can. I get off the regular schedule also because of the fact that it helps me do things like these guests because then I can schedule it according to them and not according to like what Blog Talk Radio expects from me when I tell them I'm going to be on at a certain time. So if you have anybody you would like to see, continue to send in these suggestions. I've gotten a few. I'm going to go ahead and try to follow those up. And if you can give me websites for these people, that would be great. So please feel free to visit vradio.org. That's v-radio.org. That's where you can find the link to my uh, archived shows and also my blog, which I update fairly regularly. Um, It's a very primitive website. It came free with my web package, but it gets the job done of getting you all that information. And if you happen to run a radio show that's about these sorts of topics, don't hesitate to let, let me know, email me, and I'll be happy to add them to my list of links. Thanks again for tuning in to V-Radio.